I'm Lauren. I'm Bud. And you're listening to the, the Progression, Progression Podcast. Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. I'm back from India and excited to bring more chat about careers in tech and leadership to the pod. This week, I chatted to Lauren Curry OBE, a service designer, blogger, passionate advocate of social issues and managing director of Nobel here in the UK, as well as Bud Cadell, the founder of the California-based organizational design consultancy. We tackle a couple of meaty topics around diversity. How can we as an industry better empathize with and improve diversity in the workplace? Plus, we get to hear about the inner machinations of Nobel and the other projects that Lauren is working on. Do check out the show notes for links to all the things we discuss and reach out to Lauren or Bud on Twitter if you want to know more. Remember, if you or someone you know would be interesting for me to speak to on the pod, do let me know. And as always, you can check out my product progression pack at progressionpack.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I've been told that an iTunes review really helps other people find it and it's completely free. So please do pop on over and do me a solid with a five star review. Okay, that's it. On with the pod. Bud and Lauren, great to have you on the podcast. Let's start by finding out a bit more about you guys, both individually, how you came to be where you are right now, and then also Nobel and what Nobel does and uh, what the mission is, things like that. All right. So I'm Lauren. Uh, My background, I started in product design. So I went to art school on a mission to be the next Steve Jobs or James Dyson, wanted to make an object that would make me rich and make people's lives better. And really early on in my studies, I discovered service design, which, you know, is a much more mainstream discipline now, as we know that it's about taking the same methodologies and processes that you would use to make an object and applying that to a service or a system or an experience. And from then on, really, I was on a mission to to use service design to make Scotland better. And that led me to co-found Snook, one of the UK's first service design for social change agencies. And I ran that together with Sarah for seven years, doing a lot of work in the government and across the public sector. And I then moved to London uh, with the idea that I should probably try and have a normal job for a bit and see how that feels, which didn't last very long. Then I spent some time as director of design at Good Lab. So Good Lab is a really, um, a really unique collaboration of eleven of the UK's largest charities who have all come together to tackle the really complex challenge that the whole sector is facing around how they raise funds. And our brief was to build a business that would generate two hundred and fifty million pounds worth of profit for the entire sector. So I spent a couple of years working with those charities, shipping a new business every three months in the, in the, in the hope that most of them probably wouldn't work, but one of them, one of them would. And I guess through all of that work in my career to date, you know, I've shipped lots of prototypes, designed lots of things, and I've become more and more aware that regardless of how brilliant your output is, it always butts up against institutional dysfunction and internal politics and like really complex stuff that happens inside organisations and teams, which kind of lands us to organisational design and the idea of applying design methodology to teams and systems and processes, which led, you know, brings us to the current day of when Bud and Bree got in touch and convinced me to 
skip my maternity leave and, and join their army to bring Nobel to, to Europe. And we're on a mission to help people realise their legacy at work and make work better. Very nice. I'm, so I'm Bud, and Lauren just crushed the description of Nobel. Um, you know, my background really quickly, there's been no conscious design of my career in any way whatsoever. It was just led by productive frustration. I started off, I got my first computer when I was five. I was programming at 10. I worked as head of tech for a VC-backed company when I was 17. And then the bubble popped and I, want no, I wanted nothing to do with computers ever again. And I got a degree in medieval literature. And then I like couldn't help it, but, you know, I fell in love with computers as a kid. So there's no way I could stay away for long. Started a couple companies in college, then just got really lucky to find myself in New York being able to consult with the CEO of Pepsi and GE and American Express. And at first it was, let me tell you about the internet, it's like Mars to you, um, which it was at the time. And then we rode this wave of the internet will disrupt how you talk to consumers, which became the internet will disrupt how you make products, which became, oh God, you have to fix the way that you work because none of these new technologies are diffusing into the organization. So around 2008, 2009, I just became obsessed with both how companies and economies work and then spent, again, a little bit more time in New York as a management consultant doing a lot of deck work and just got so incredibly tired of both making prototypes and making decks that went nowhere inside organizations. So again, I was just super frustrated. So I started Nobel in 2014 to, you know, with a mission to unlock people's ideas inside companies and unlock their potential. Because I also started to feel incredibly arrogant to go into an organization and tell them that I had better ideas than they had, or I somehow had my finger on culture better than they did. I mean, I just had more time to be creative. I had processes that let me be creative. So just became obsessed with how do you, how do you give everyone the possibility to make something they're proud of inside an organization? So that's really what fueled us. It's interesting to hear that the, the the genesis of Nobel comes from you know really big corporates and kind of organizational change into maybe a more digital environment. Yeah. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask just on Nobel actually is you put out a huge amount of a number of resources, things for people to, to read and, and uh, books and all sorts of stuff around organizational change. How much of that is quite digital specific? Or, or relating to the change of the technological landscape and, and things like that versus actually just the human condition. And this is really anyone that works anywhere should should be able to. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think all of it is human based. You know, I like all of our. So we have two kinds of clients, typically like large, large corporate entities, but also scaling startups that are go, like scaling exponentially and people and processes can't. I mean, the one thing I realized when I started Nobel was that I didn't have the capabilities I needed to really do this work. So we hired a bunch of organizational psychologists and people with a design background. And I think when you pair a psychologist up with someone who can prototype things really quickly, you get transformational change in a much faster way. But everything that we put out is really through the lens of we think that mass behavior change inside an organization is really just individual behavior change at scale. So a lot of it is how do you increase people's motivation? How do you decrease the complexity and complication of actually making the change? And then how do you create these big cultural moments inside a company that really triggers you to change? Right. How much of that is uh, reliant on 
the leadership getting on board? I mean, how, how much of your work is with really the very senior leadership of a company versus more grassroots, you know, individual managers and, and people working, um, I suppose, at the coalface? Uh, how much meaningful change can come from the bottom versus needing to be, you know, someone championing from the top? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question and it's one that we, we actually were recently chatting about it and inside our team and it's something that makes Nobel quite different from other organisations to do this work is we work very closely with the middle layer of people and organisations and we are based with them. Like we, we join their, their team and we get into the trenches with them and we're very much on the ground throughout the process and then we design... We design our process in a way that it touches a diagonal slice of the organisation so that we can involve people with a whole range of, you know, from different tenures and different backgrounds and different levels. Ultimately, the leadership buy-in does need to be there, but the but the change has to come from has to come from the bottom and the middle. Yeah, one of the hardest challenges of doing any sort of change is finding slack or capacity for change inside the organisation. So if people are in 50 hours of meetings a week, like most executives are, they just, they don't have the time or the, like the cognitive load to do those things. So we try to take that off of them. For leaders, we really focus on vision and narrative of change. For that middle layer, it's really about just empowering them. We literally sit with them in the beginning and say like, what would you like to change here? And it's not about us coming in with like our perfect ideas. We bring in research, we bring in new ways of working from other companies like you do. Um, but then it's really their change. And then, you know, sort of the bottom layers of the organization where the coal faces, where they have the closest interaction, then it's about like bubbling up insights from those folks and like for the first time asking them like what's actually changing. Um, and that can look like anything from inside the company or, you know, we have some clients with like uh, retail outlets or restaurants. Like I, was, I went around the country in the U.S. and pretended to be a waiter for six weeks just to learn sort of what was happening in the restaurants and talk to people. So... Right. Yeah. One thing actually that that I talked to Andy Budd uh, a few weeks ago, and he mentioned, and I, I find this to be true as well, at the top of a company, actually, as you say, 50 hours of meetings a week, the executives don't really have a very small understanding of the granular activity of the company and, and what's happening really in the company. You know, this person that I'm looking at, what are they actually doing and who, who are they? What's their job? Um, but presumably they're the people that will quite often buy Nobel. Uh, so how do you make sure that the feedback loop of success gets back to them in a way that they can see results while while actually the 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 real meaningful results happens one or even two layers below them yeah i mean ultimately that's a huge part of what our job is it's our responsibility to be that bridge so we spend a huge amount of time and energy understanding how we can be that translator in a way that works for both groups of people and that involves spending a lot of time with both and figuring out you know what is the what is the the method of communication or the artifact that is the the best way to spread this message and this narrative across the organization in a way that will land with you know this the ceo who has a very different day-to-day to somebody on the the co-face so that might be you know we make there's a bunch of different formats you know we've we've created outputs in the form of of card decks we build websites we've made films we run events uh, and there's no one size fits all you know we we 
we really respond to the the context that we're in at the time. And you're you're not promising an output up front so, so much as an outcome, right? So so then yeah. that gives you the flexibility to do that. Absolutely. And you know, our work is very industry agnostic. Like often particularly startups, they'll say to us, yeah, but have you worked with a startup doing exactly what we are doing in exactly this sector? And sometimes the answer is no. Um, and actually, we're, we're proud of that because all of our work is about groups of human beings trying to do a thing. And that is, you know, the same problems. We see the same problems and the same patterns over and over again. It's the context that's unique, but the outcome and where we get at the end. Yeah always has you know the same red threads of you know increased confidence people feeling more empowered reduction in meetings um you know and it actually does affect the the quality of the output of what the team's delivering whether that's you know in terms of quality or pace or whatever the kpi is right at the end of the day as humans we care about good communication and feeling valued and all this kind of stuff and it really doesn't matter what the what whether it's even a company or some other entity of group of people trying to do a thing it's just the same but it's really it's really difficult like we human beings are so complex and every every human that joins your team you know as more as your as your headcount increases the complexity increases so you know it's it's simple when you can all fit around the table and and make a decision that way you know when you've got a thousand staff based in cities all over the world which many of our clients do that becomes you know, a whole, a whole different type of conversation, which is why we talk about this notion that technology can scale exponentially, but people can't. And the, the context of our work is, is one that we've never seen before. Like technology is enabling people to work in ways that is are completely, completely new and different to anything we've ever seen before, which is why it's, which is why it's hard. Right, right. I have one more question about kind of Nobel stuff and then we'll move on to the other meaty topics that we have. But um, Lauren, this is for you. As a service designer background, um, being in a position to be able to dictate a meaningful kind of amount of the, the strategy of Nobel as a designer, um, designers often complain about having a seat at the table and being able to influence strategy and, and kind of business. But actually, your background lends itself very much to you've always been strategic in, in the things that you do. So how do you find with the McKinsey report around you know the value of design in, in organisations, things like that? Do you find that um, selling the fact that there is design as part of this process and designers are involved, does that uh, lend itself to do companies want to buy that? You know, um, yeah, it's a good it's a good question and one that we've been talking about a lot because for you know from for in my role to to bring Nobel to this part of the world you know the my design background and design sensibility will have a huge influence on that and we've been talking a lot about what that means for our for our service for our brand for our positioning I think there's a few different parts to it I mean one part is you know, for all the, the teaching I've done over the years, and I always get asked the same question of like, how do I become a service designer? How do I learn service design? And my answer is always the same thing in that you build a service that people will pay you to use, build a service that solves a problem that people will pay for. I think that is ultimately the, the how you learn how to design services. And I think we can see examples from, you know, organisations like, Airbnb who have founders who all come from a design background and actually that feels 
much more inspiring to me than helping other organisations get better at service design or apply service design to their services. So I actually get a huge buzz out of building services from scratch, which, you know, in some ways is, is what I'm doing here. And then from a client perspective, I mean, there's a bit of me that is a bit frustrated that, you know, the work that Sarah and I did in, together at Snook was ahead of its time. And, you know, I'm sh I know that there's a compliment in there somewhere, but it's actually not, doesn't feel very good or helpful at the time. Um, so there's, you know, there, that feeling's definitely part of it. And then the other thing, the other feeling is just, you know, we've, we've come so far, we've made so much progress. You know, we are in a position that when I was a student, we used to fantasize about imagine designers worked inside government. And now that's very much a reality. But I'm also acutely aware of how much work still has to be done. Like design as an industry is uh, lacking diversity. You know, we are, we are still building products and tech and services that are causing immense harm to millions of people. And, you know, there's there's lots of really big problems to solve. You know, I don't need to remind, remind us of the political environment that we're in from, we've got Brexit and Trump represented in this room. And I, I want to see service designers tackling that stuff because that's, that's what matters. Right. This is an excellent segue into uh, the first, uh, I suppose, meaty topic that I wanted to discuss uh, specifically with you both. Um, because, as you say, it matters. Uh, a diverse set of opinions within within the design community leads to a diverse set of outcomes and a fair set of outcomes for all. And you, you might start to counteract some of the damaging, everything from the attention economy and, and helping with smartphone addiction through to uh, influencing everything from politics to, to policy um, through better or worse design. And both intentionally bad design or dark patterns mm -hmm. through to accidentally bad design that leads to to bad outcomes. So um, that is the world that we are currently in, and we're only starting to understand what that means for the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I suppose with that as one level of context, but then also with the level of context of, of within tech, at least, diversity is not good. Um, how I, I'd love to just... I suppose, open the floor to opinions around uh, how we start to think about and solve these these issues within our industry. Uh, well, let me start off by checking my privilege in a lot of ways. I mean, like the world needs one more white guy talking about uh, his opinions <laughs> on diversity. Um, so I'll check that and, you know, I'll talk about a few things, but I, I want to let Lauren talk quite a bit too. Um, you know, I look at it from some perspectives. One... As a white guy, I have to hire really smart people around me who can see the world differently than me and don't have my assumptions about how things work. Nobel is like majority women, and I think that's really great. I've I've found in my career, you know, um, that you I just look for people who can listen. I, the The work that we have is so complicated, and men and women can do that. But um, we've somehow ended up this way, and now we have our own diversity problem. And in, in that way, the things I'll, I guess that stick with me that I talk about a lot um, that are closer to me is that I feel like we made a mistake by calling things implicit bias. I feel like um, they're not implicit biases, they're explicit biases. I'm a guy from Texas. 
people who are lovely people who thought they were taking care of me and giving me good advice just gave me terrible advice. And, like, I have to struggle with that in my life because I'm, I'm biased towards people. So I wish we called it explicit bias training, and I think that there's an opportunity to give space to people to just recognize that these opinions and these ideas came from people that were close to them, and you have to let that go at some stage. The other thing that is closer to me is just mental health at work and diversity. It feels like where we were five or ten years ago with other issues of diversity, that we don't have language around it, it still feels like a compliance problem. We're not really talking about it. As someone who suffers from time to time from it, there was no, you know, there was no way to talk about it to my boss at the time or to really understand what I needed at work. And so I think that's a new frontier that we're just now starting to tap. And, and at Nobel, we're, you know, we're early into thinking about what that really means because we put people through such emotionally rigorous processes, right? Mm. Like we're asking them to change a lot of things at work. And I never want that to be an unsafe environment for people. And I think a lot of our competitors go into organizations and they borrow things that they either did in therapy or they've heard about. And I think right. it's causing real, real harm. And for us, it's like, do I have the right to really even expose the, th the things in your life? And at what point does it become exposing traumas and that is really reckless. It's interesting that you mentioned mental health. Uh, I think it's, well, you, you see, I suppose, more generally, uh, it's easy to have a sick day if you've got a cold, but very hard to have a sick day if you're not feeling great. Uh, and you you can't point at, I don't know, a lump or a, or a sneeze. Um, and equally, when, you, when you're talking about diversity, it's, it's very easy to wrap numbers around gender or race. Um, around kind of diversity and you know it may not look good but at least there's a thing that you can track on a graph but uh something as taboo as mental health that is so hard to see and understand and track and can affect anyone uh is uh, i suppose one of the last frontiers of working out how to actually be inclusive and uh, i suppose also with that people have a less of an understanding of what a good and a bad um outcome looks like or or a good or a bad way to deal with those issues at work um, as you say like the expert is the person that has gone through an experience themselves and then kind of applies that to the world around them and it starts to just look like perks i mean it's like it's sort of like meditation pods and <laughs> yeah. um exercise classes and things and which isn't wrong but it you know it's it just looks like glitter on top of it and people aren't really addressing the deeper issues and you know and then there's there's the whole side of like, what, what does work owe you? Because if, you know, if you have meditation pods, but you're working people at like 70 hours a week, you know, like what, what yeah, you're culpable for that, that mental health. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Lauren, I wanted to, there's a project that you worked on uh, upfront, mm. which is focused, I suppose, on diversity and diversity of confidence. I don't know if that's a fair way to describe it. Yeah, so there's the kind of two two main angles for me. So one is upfront, which is my my startup that's um, that I do in my spare time. <laughs> there were air quotes there. Just... Yes, and that actually started from uh, my own personal experience of often being the only 
women on the stage and being very frustrated at the particularly the design community, the conference stages being dominated by the same middle-aged white men and I've got a rule that you can only complain about something three times and then you need to try and fix it and I definitely complained more than three times so I decided to kind of dig into you know why why aren't my peers on stage why you know why are stages um lacking such diversity and it's a really really complex problem you know there's people doing PhDs in intersectional feminism trying to figure this out and I definitely don't have all the answers but I did land on a really clear insight that is one of the huge barriers is the actual physicality of standing on a raised stage is something that in our professional lives we don't get to practice we don't get to job shadow which doesn't make sense because in every other area of our development we get training or we go on a workshop or we you know we learn from somebody so the the hypothesis is if every keynote speaker so people like bud and i who are on stage regularly and we're confident and competent up there what if we share our stage and our power with people who would one day like to be up there but are not yet ready to to perform and they get to sit on a big red sofa that's on the stage and we pre-select people who want to be on stage in a safe environment as a way to overcome their stage fright and through a whole bunch of prototypes um i've learned you know we now have a uh, a process and we have conferences all over the world that use the upfront sofa we've had over 500 men and women take part and we now know that it works so just by sitting on that sofa uh, you are 30% more likely to speak at an event yourself one day speakers tell us you know they feel less lonely and less scared because they've got some buddies up there it's a very physical act that you know enables a conference to to portray a, a clear statement um that they're committed to equality and then i realized that you know when people sit on the couch they they're like okay so what now do you have a course i can go on or a book i could buy and i was like i have neither of those things so i designed a, a training program and hired some people and skilled them up and now we we work with organizations to deliver workshops on authentic confidence and it's very much uh, an antidote to the existing products and services in the world around confidence right now and most of them are led by men they have an you know they have a very american sorry bud approach <laughs> to confidence very aggressive uh, domineering attitude and i'm starting a, a new conversation about confidence that's about vulnerability and kindness and actually there is we don't need to follow steps or fix ourselves it's actually just about tapping into to who we are so you know that has led to me having lots of conversations and doing lots of work around diversity and inclusion with a, a whole bunch of people and then the other aspect of it is that you know i had a baby in january and i'm now uh, a working parent and i'm on the board of an organization called pregnant then screwed that is tackling maternity discrimination and you know the data shows us that a huge reason we have the problems we have is that women don't aren't in leadership positions and a, a huge part of why that happens is because our system is not designed to serve people with children mm -hmm. so 54,000 women lose their job every single year for becoming pregnant 77 percent of women who our parents have experienced discrimination at work and 
you know, I think there's so many stats like that that I could mm. share that points to how systemic and entrenched this problem is and that right. actually if we're going to tackle diversity head on, we need to change the entire system, yeah. which, you know, is going to take a huge amount of work and and money, yeah. which, you know, leads me to when people say, well, like, you know, what can I do about it as somebody, people listening who run teams or run businesses, it's like instead of using words like empower and celebrate, you know, like hire and pay and invest and right. bonus and like, and do it. Pay, pay women and pay people of colour. Yeah. That's a, a huge action that we can take. Yeah, there's a there's a graph, and, I, and I, I'm probably going to misremember it, but uh, there's a graph of uh, age along the x-axis um, and uh, diversity in terms of gender uh, along the y. Wait, is y the vertical one? I can't remember. But uh, yes, the, <laughs> thank you. There's uh, people that you know. There's a narrative of well, fewer women want to get into um, technical subjects, and it's you know the other things that interest them. That's actually just not true, uh, and the, the the data proves that uh, below a certain uh, number of years of experience or below a certain age, actually the the graph is flipped, and then there's a point at which around the age of probably starting a family and things like that, um, there is there's a big impact on career trajectory, and actually looking at just a percentage number of men versus women in your organisation doesn't show the true. You need to look at seniority and, and who is in a position of of power or influence and, yeah. and like pay scales and things like that. So, um, I mean, Slater and Gordon recently published a report that shared 30% of employers avoid hiring women of childbearing age. But, you know, is that like 18 to 45? Yeah, it's extraordinary. So there's there's a really, really big problem. I've certainly been in organisations where I've heard a leader say, I wouldn't have hired her if I knew she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's just in, it's just intense. And we know that when when fathers become parents they are they're likely to get a pay rise and when mothers become parents they're likely to get demoted. Like that is that is reality. So if you'd like to support pregnant then screwed, if I can plug like you can visit their website, sign they've got lots of petitions lobbying parliament just now to change the law one that's probably relevant for you Johnny is that they're trying to change the law so that freelancers and people who are self-employed get access to statutory uh, maternity and paternity support because right now um, you can't get any so sign their petitions you can volunteer and of course uh, donate to their cause fantastic I'll I'll definitely put that in the show notes as well Um, great so I, I suppose I have one last question on the diversity side which is for me and Bud, as uh, white men, how do we uh, help? How how what can we do to to mm. help with the cause? Uh, because there is naturally, as Bud said earlier, there's a there's a lack of empathy just through the mm-hmm. the the way that we've been brought up and and the you know the privilege that we've had that we didn't even see. Um, so how do we empathise and then and then support? Yeah. Course. So the first thing is asking that question. And I, you know, I'm I don't exaggerate when I say that it's very rare for people who look like you to ask me that. Now you both do and have, which is probably why we're friends and we're here working together. But that's the first step is asking that question. And then asking that question to 
to other people. You know, I am also very privileged being here as a as a white uh, cis woman. So it's like asking that question to lots of different groups. You know, Johnny, you have a platform with your podcast, and I would encourage you, as you are, to invite women and people of color to to be to be on your podcast lift them up and 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 celebrate their stories you know as bud talked about he's built an entire business with offices all over the world all run by women um which is which is amazing but we were chatting earlier about uh really really practical things that you know we can all do when we go back to work on Wednesday and I think one of them is this notion of uh, deeds not words so this stuff is like really easy to to talk about and actions you can take so upfront is a really practical action if anybody who is a speaker or runs a conference would like upfront to be part of how they do things then get in touch and we can make that happen really easily so it's weareupfront.com Another thing is that we need to we need to cite diverse people. So I really tire of the number of presentations I've sat through where it's the same people being quoted time and time again. Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Albert Einstein. But we need to seek out different voices to to cite. So even citing diversely. And I must credit Rebecca Kemp from the Citizens Advice Bureau from with this insight. But I think it's it's so actionable and powerful. And if we all did that, you know, this conversation would happen much more often. Yeah. I've always wanted a quote site. Cause you know, when you Google for quotes, like quotes on inspiration, <laughs> you get these sites that are mostly men. Yeah. I was like, so there's an opportunity for someone to build one. That's just quotes from women Yeah, that I would actually love. Should we build that? Yeah, maybe. I'd love that. Can I ask you a question, Lauren, really quickly yes. on, on what you said? I, you know, as a white cisgender man, I, I'm very conscious of the burden, though, asking the question puts on a woman or a person of mm -hmm. color or any underrepresented community. Um, like, what's the, you know, I may, you know, maybe there's no answer to this, but that feels like a burden as well. Of mm -hmm. Like, you have to educate me in this space of what it looks and feels like to you, which I think, you know, at work, we've heard that that is incredibly taxing for someone and it puts them in a position where they might just, they feel like they have to reinforce a stereotype. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're totally right. And I think, you know, I've heard multiple times that the, the best selling book, like why I'm no longer talking to white people about race mm. is, is very much based on that insight. And actually it's, it's our responsibility to educate ourselves. Right. But I, you know, I do, I do, I do feel like we, we have to have those conversations and be able to ask those questions. So I guess it's about being really thoughtful on who you ask. So it's not something that you, yeah. you know, you just tweet out to the world, but it might be somebody that you have, you know, a close relationship to. Yeah. And because, because you're right, that is a, it is a burden. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer. It's really difficult. Mm. Yeah. Building diverse friendships and uh, mentoring relationships and things like that feels very important as well. It's, and another thing that's so easy to just forget to do because it's actually easier to find people like you to 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 help you know uh, build the career that you have, for example, or um, or to, to hang out with. You know, uh, it's, I suppose the nature of it. Um, the other the, I saw a Twitter account uh, recently that's very funny and it reframes things that men say as things that women say mm. and it, it casts light on 
the other thing that I think is something that individual people can do or, or try to do semi-regularly to check their privilege, if you like, is to just flip either the gender or the race or, or the background on who, whoever has said a thing or, or completed a, a project to a level of quality or whatever it is and just say, if this was a white man that had done this, what would my reaction be if, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can kind of sense check against your own privilege. Like, um, There's also there's another really easy one to fix, which is a lot of, you know, a lot of really good intentioned individuals who are, you know, building events or doing work in the space talk, use the word female. And I really encourage them to use the word women because fem female and women is two very different things. Mm. And, you know, there's people who identify as women who, who don't identify with the word female. So using the word woman is much more inclusive and using the phrase, you know, people that identify as women is also much more inclusive because female is your, is your biology. That's a, that's a different thing. Right, so right. I think um, I know speaking to friends of mine who are non-binary and trans that that's a huge, uh, a huge frustration for them that the word female is still part of this language. So a step we can take is to, is to address that. Right. Presumably lady is even worse. Yeah, that's <laughs> Ladies band, um, great. Uh, let's get on to the the next and possibly final question. We'll see how much how much time we spend on it. Um, but I have seen on the Nobel website and various resources, and and I think this is something that you've thought and written about a lot. Is um, the the role of personality testing in um, I suppose management and in uh, performance management and leadership and things like that and uh, like many of these things, it's a crutch, or is it something that's useful and provides more data? And is there a place for it? Uh, and how do you use it? So self awareness is always good. Let's put let's put that out there. I think um, personality tests, to some degree, and I think Lauren has a lot of thoughts on this, are sort of running rampant in terms of of how they're used. And they can actually reinforce stereotypes about a person because they seem very fixed versus as a team grows, as more diverse people become on the team, you have to change, you have to evolve. You're no longer INF whatever. Uh, you know, once you have to modulate yourself and work well together with other people, it does feel if you know, we're people who run workshops and when you do personality, you know, disc, whatever, the Myers-Briggs and things like that, which that has so many flaws that we can talk about. Um, you can see that it lights people up because people like to know things about themselves. And there's a layer to that, again, which is great because self-awareness is really important. There's a layer of that, though, that becomes narcissistic um, and indulgent to some degree because you're learning more and more about yourself and not really about sort of the dynamics of the relationships that you have with other people. And again, you might learn that they're like some acronym but that doesn't tell you like how you negotiate power, how you negotiate relationships together. So um, they're not really something that we lead with. Right. There's you know there's better examples of things like the Johari window, which is you know getting an understanding of like where your blind spots are as a person, how others perceive you, which I think is a little bit more important because it gets the dynamic of the team. Yeah, I think the they do produce a bunch of data but it's probably not the most meaningful set of variables 
that affects performance, like what is much more interesting and revealing is a person's habits and their values and their motivations. So that's always, you know, where I would start because personality is fixed. Okay, so there's a, the, it sounds like there's a difference between personality tests as in Myers-Briggs et al., you know, all the, all the things that have kind of, uh, if that's canon, then like everything that's followed um, from Myers-Briggs, uh, which really spits out things about you that are kind of vague and, and personality rather than uh, outcomes, I suppose, um, versus actually a different thing, which is what is the data that you need to be able to help to understand who you are and how you can improve and, and um and maybe if you're a manager to do the same or, or whoever is running your workshop or uh, whatever that is. So um, I suppose my, my counterpoint and, and I suppose to, to play devil's advocate, not that I love Myers-Briggs by any means, but um, in a world where, uh, to go back to the, the diversity point, where uh, a person a single person's opinion can be the difference between you having a fantastic career and a less fantastic career um, and whether you are like the person that is judging you um, whether you get on well in the pub for example that makes all that difference then actually a level of data and a level of objectivity um, could be very powerful towards that so how do you uh, add more data to help with a more objective decision definitely if people are deciding who in their whole organization is doing is performing well and who isn't um, how do you do that while while not just putting people in boxes? And um, you know, one of the cognitive biases that is one of my favourites is the the halo and horns effect, which is as soon as you meet someone, you'll probably put them in a box of this person is a well performing person or a poorly performing person or someone I like or someone I don't. Um, and then once they're in that box, based on the first data point you get, like the first project they complete or the, your first interaction with them very hard for them to switch to a different box. So that's why people then kind of table flip and go to a different job or whatever it is and, and want a, a clean slate. So how do you push back against that inherently human issue while not it being a kind of tick box exercise? So closer to your world and what you're trying to build, I find this really fascinating and I can't say that I have a definitive answer, but we're trying some experiments. I think when you look at uh, progression systems in most organizations, those ones that we cite tend to come from engineering organizations, and they tend to think that you can bludgeon subjectivity out with detail. Right. Um, and they miss these conversations around, like, we're different. Why are, you know, how does that change how our perceptions of each other? Some different ways that we've experimented with exposing those conversations, because I don't, those are conversations that need to happen. I don't know if necessarily data facilitates those in some ways. Um, even for Nobel, our internal progression system is actually half skills, half trust based. Right. So it's skills can be sometimes treated like Pokemon inside an organization of like, you've got to catch them all. So you take a bunch of classes and then you right. go to your manager and you say like, I'm now proficient in this. Yeah. Um, and then that just becomes a, like a debate about whether they, you know, whether that qualifies or not. Ours is based on, do you have the skill? And then does your team trust you to execute that skill? Right. And trust is, I think if people hear that, they think that sounds incredibly subjective because yeah. trust means something different to everyone. And it's subjective on purpose because it forces a conversation okay. that is messier, which okay. is, why don't you trust me? What would it take for you to trust me? 
And you as a manager have to ask like, yeah, why don't I trust that person? Or where does that come from? Or why do I trust this person more than this person? Is it really because, you know, there's some sort of subjective bias that I have coming in it? Or is there an objective reason? Right. That's one way. And, you know, we're still experimenting that we, you know, everything we do with clients, we first done to ourselves and we've tested in smaller environments. The other thing, when I ran teams in an ad agency, I used to play this game called the Bucket Brigade, which was at the end of every project, I gave everyone 100 points to dole out on the team for other mm-hmm. people's contributions. And I could match that to people's allocations because we were pretty strict on allocations. So I could see, like, Joe was on the project 20%, but he got 50% of the points. What does that right. mean? Right. Um, and again, there's still sub- subjectivity built into that. But I could look across like five projects and get a sense of like, okay, why is this one person seemingly underperforming? And again, I never took that data as, I, I think of everyone as an unreliable narrator, but mm. you still can take that data and go have a conversation about like, yeah, why do we think that's happening on the team? Okay. Um, and I've also, to your point about uh, horns and halos, culture plays a really interesting role in that too, because I've worked in companies and been in companies as a consultant that have a cult-like culture. And there's so, there's so many benefits of having a gradation of a cult-like culture, but then at some point it creates in-groups and out-groups that are super severe mm. and people almost bounce off of the company like it, like the atmosphere of the earth and they'll never really be able to come in because they don't look and smell and feel right. like people who work there. So I think you have to be really careful with the culture you're building that it's still porous, right. that people can come in and they can come in with goodwill. But a homogenous group of people performing well is more efficient than... A group of people that might disagree with each other so there's like advantages to depends the business on, or yeah it totally depends on the environment actually so research will show that there's a spectrum of work from fixed to fluid fixed environments being like manufacturing like a, an auto manufacturing line fluid being more around uncertainty startups and novelty and speed and fixed environments homogenous groups work well quickly so if you want to start a production line tomorrow go get the same 30 people who grew up in the same neighborhood because they don't need to spend time aligning social norms. Right. But if you work in a highly like fluid environment where there's so much un- uncertainty, you want a diversity of opinions and a diversity of backgrounds because you're still sort of seeking product service market fit. Right, right. And to be clear, you would always go for the fluid version? No. no. Yeah. Okay. So so actually it's, it's okay to go for a... Of course. Uh, Depends uh, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, we talk a lot about culture market fit. As a company, and right. that's what we help companies do. So you have the the x-axis of fixed versus <laughs> fluid, and then you have an internal axis in terms of your culture from homogenous to variable. Right. Um, and as you move towards fixed, you actually want to create some, but you never really want to either be on like at the extremes of either of these spectrums. But you do want to create cultures that are more aligned, that share more of the same values as you right. moved into fixed. And fluid, actually, startups make the mistake all the time of just hiring your friends, and you actually have a super homogenous culture, yeah. um, you know, and you end up with opportunities that are adjacent to much bigger opportunities. You think of, like, couch surfing versus Airbnb, right. right? Like, there are bigger opportunities if you have a more diverse crew in the beginning, but most startup founders make that mistake. Because it's easier. Right. I mean, all of this also comes down to people are freaking out about speed, and you've got to hire people, and that's one reason you end up with groups that look and talk just like you. Right. So uh, uh, last question, I think. Hiring. I suppose it touches diversity and also some level of kind of objective testing that needs to go on and, and a consistent 
um, hiring process if you're if you're looking for whether it's an engineer or a designer or, or really any other person if you've got multiple candidates you want to know that against our values and against the things we want this is the right person for the job what's the best way for companies to mitigate for those biases that will just creep in mm. so the first thing i think is to look inwards and hold a mirror up at your own leadership team so i think any business with an all-white male leadership team will never own the future and there is a staggering number of organizations that have that makeup at board level so that is the first thing to address because that will ultimately affect the what the process and approach um for hiring looks like yeah i there's the answer is it's really complicated so everyone is trying to do hiring better and the science of it is very difficult because you can look at some companies who are doing like blind auditioning there was like this super famous example of um and i'm going to misremember it as well which is the it was um uh, an orchestra and they realized that like they were just bringing in like white men to play in the orchestra so they actually put up this like massive tapestry where they and they had people take their shoes off so you couldn't even hear if it was a woman wearing heels or a man wearing shoes and they suddenly realized that like diversity increased by 70 percent or something like that right but people have now tried it in organizations and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't Right. Um, you know, and I think there are other examples of companies that are even starting to look at their job descriptions and if they're being written from a very male perspective, mm. there's tools out there that you can use now that actually checks your language for it. Um, at my last company, the founder um, started just doing first interviews on IM and mm. chat just so that like the how the person looked or their mannerisms didn't affect. Right. The, the conversation, which I think is interesting, but hiring is incredibly difficult mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of, of making that. There are really good organizations. So in California, um, where I'm based, there's an organization called MLT. And what they do is they're really challenging every startup founder saying like, it's a pipeline problem, which isn't really true, but we, yeah, but sure. Um, and what they're doing is they're looking for people from underrepresented communities in junior high right. and creating a mentorship program for them there and then following them all the way through their career in terms and until they become a leader inside an organization and then sort of like flip the script back on them and say like, you have to go be a mentor now okay. to someone there. And I think, and then they go to companies and they say, look, we have a pipeline now, like put up or shut up. Right. Like it's an amazing pipeline. There's been more investment in these candidates than any other candidates you're going to get. Right. Um, and I think companies should be looking for partners like that more and more. Mm. There's also a really practical, easy win, which is the imagery to Bud's point on language is the imagery that you use on your site and across your social feeds um, where potential candidates are obviously going to spend time you know, looking at LinkedIn, looking at your website, yeah. getting to understand your business. And it amazes me how many, particularly studios and agencies, have images of like, here's us in a workshop, here's yeah. us at a presentation, here's us working with users to test our thing, and there's no women in any of the pictures. <laughs> yeah. So you just like, look, look, like that's, because you're sending a really clear message by the, yeah. like the, the visuals that you put into the world. So that's another thing to, to look at carefully as well as your language. Right. And, there are certain types of people that are less likely to apply for a job if they see it because they'll feel less qualified 
whereas some people will will just go you know what have i got to lose so you'll be missing out if you're it's like all it's it's part of being a human being like i all i love this mantra of like you can't be what you can't see it's like that that is a huge a huge part of what the the problem is which is why you know when you know, somebody like Hillary Clinton, politics aside, stands up and says, you know, just by being there, she's showing girls in junior high and primary school that they can be the president. They can try to be the president. They can run for office if they want. And when you, you know, still in film and TV, um, you know, the women in underrepresented groups are just not there. Right. We've definitely, in job descriptions, have written if you're a woman or a person of color and you don't feel fully qualified for this role, still apply. Because right. we know of that bias, right? Right. And actually, even having job titles, I mean, this may be extreme, but having job titles is already dividing people into, into well, this this isn't how I see myself, so I'm not going to apply for this. Whereas if you just have, have a way to apply generically to the company um, and then you can kind of defer that decision is is a good way to do it great so we've spent uh, plenty of time talking and you guys have to go but i i would finally just ask how do we find you what should people go to to read more and uh, etc etc so you can check out nobel at nobl.io click the resources tab and then it's like everything we've ever thought of exists there and you can find me at bud underscore cadell c-a-d-d-e-l-l on twitter and I'm Red Jotter on Twitter. And upfront is weareupfront.com. And Nobel and Pregnant is good. Great. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bud and fun. Lauren, it's been super fun. And speak to you again soon. Keep up the good work. Thank <laughs> you, <John. laughs> Thank you. All right.